You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, produced by University FM. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Colin Diver, who is an emeritus professor at University of Pennsylvania Law School, where he was at one point the dean. And also, he's a former president of Reed College and the author of this book, Breaking Ranks, How the Rankings Industry Rules Higher Education and What to Do About It. Welcome, Colin. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, look, the book is really sort of a a critique of the rankocracy and sort of the perverse consequences of the the, the rankocracy. And, you know, we'll, we'll dig into exactly what makes it so perverse, but it's a very complicated sort of product, right? What the university offers. And there are consumers on the side of their students that are entering into this marketplace. And there are recruiters who are entering into this marketplace. There are parents entering into this marketplace. And there's even faculty, right? Deciding kind of where they are going to information is sort of asymmetric. And so whether you're buying a refrigerator and use this analogy, when you're buying a refrigerator, when you're buying a car and when you're buying an education, particularly an education, because it's such a huge investment, it helps to have some third party kind of evaluate the nature of the product. And so this whole industry of third parties that sort of look at the product and try to figure out what its quality is, because you can't really count on the sellers, you know, be completely honest. I mean, this seems like such a great idea. And so why is it a bad idea? Well, that's a very good question. And the marketplace seems to be uh, answering that question that it's a good idea because uh, the consumers of this product, particularly applicants to colleges and their advisors, including their parents, do pay a lot of attention to uh, rankings, among other sources of data. What you say about higher education is true. It's an immensely complex product, if you even can call it a product. I sometimes call it a four-year life experience. And it's not just the classroom part of the product uh, that you're buying, but it's all the outside of classroom stuff that you're buying. And you're doing it at a stage in your life when, as a consumer at least, and if we're talking about undergraduate rankings, uh, when you're 17 or 18 or 19 years old, most in most cases, uh, you don't really know a lot. You don't know yourself terribly well. So yeah, I get the I get the argument. The problem I have though is that there's better and worse ways to curate the data. And my main complaint is that the dominant rankings, uh, which of course includes U.S. News and World Report as the number one <laughs> suspect, tend to glorify a particular view of higher education, which is based on wealth, status, prestige, and you might say a private good view of education. And they tend to view education as not having much, if anything, to do with the public good. Very little to do, for example, with the welfare of the community or social mobility or promoting democracy or any of those virtues. That's my primary complaint. I understand the need for uh, curated data. God knows there's plenty of raw data out there. And uh, I understand the need for somebody to come along and curate the data. But I'd like to see um, the dominant voices uh, look at the full range of things that higher education does 
rather than what I call just privileging the privilege or uh, cementing social privilege in our society. Right. And so we will talk about sort of the incentives on educators that are created by these rankings. And you make this one distinction between the public impact of the schools versus the the private impact. But even within the private impact, I mean, there are two ways you could approach this, right? You could say as a student, who's going to give me the better education and who's going to give me the better signal, right? And if, if people were interested in the education, then presumably there would be multiple competing ways of ranking the schools, right? So for instance, when you're buying a refrigerator, there's no single agreed upon metric by which you evaluate refrigerators. And if Home Depot did that, we would just kind of laugh at them, right? Because it depends on, do you want gas? Do you want electric? Do you want a 36 inch? Do you want a 48 inch? Do you want a chrome one? So they understand that there are these heterogeneous preferences. If all you're doing is buying status, then it makes sense to sort of have a single ordinal ranking. So is the emergence of this single ordinal ranking tied up in this shift from our view of education as education and our view of education as sort of certification or status signaling, this positional good that you're talking about? Well, I think so. I mean, I think that in some ways, of course, higher education has always signaled status. That in many ways was what the Ivy League institutions were doing a hundred years ago. Although I, I think long before that, they weren't signaling status so much as actually educating people. But it's for a long time, yes, they have signaled status, but they have also done other things. And if you look below the top 15, 20 schools in whatever ordering you want to come up with, uh, you see that what their job is is primarily to educate and to teach skills and to teach attitudes, uh, to equip people for a transition from the high school years to the post-college years, from the educational years to the work years. I think that what the rankings have done, and particularly, again, the the most status-oriented of the rankings, is they have taken status as the number one, and uh, they have cemented status in in many ways. I mean, I remember, so I applied for colleges before these U.S. News rankings, and I think they were introduced in 1983. And so I recall that process and I recall thinking, okay, do I want to go to an urban school? Do I want to go to a rural school? Do I want to go to a liberal arts school? Do I want to go research oriented school? And that's sort of how I thought about, I mean, obviously I knew there were sort of quote, higher quality, lower quality. If you want to go to a research university, then, you know, there are schools that do more research and so forth. But it seems like people, a lot of applicants don't really think that way, right? And you, you, you hold up the example of University of Chicago, which sort of had a idiosyncratic approach to education, and they sort of, they've lost a bit of that kind of idiosyncrasy. Yeah. I mean, it's not accidental that um, I wrote this book having been president of Reed College. Reed College is uh, a distinctive institution, somewhat like University of Chicago, except a whole lot smaller. But it's a school that has maintained a a pretty fierce focus on intellectual growth and intellectual development. And it's not surprising that on a per capita basis, it produces more PhDs than almost any other institution in the world. And that's something that I really strongly internalized. Uh, And when I was making a choice about colleges, growing up in Boston, 
uh, being terribly Eastern-centric, <laughs> thinking primarily that uh, higher education ended somewhere uh, near the Hudson River, <laughs> I looked pretty hard at schools like uh, Harvard and Yale and decided that I didn't want to go there partly because I would be taught mostly by graduate students. Um, I would not be taught by the big-name professors who even then I knew were spending most of their time doing research. Uh, and so I chose a liberal arts college, Amherst College, precisely because I wanted to be taught and I wanted the full-time faculty to teach me. Well, so you dig into the way U.S. News comes up with these rankings and they sort of pick a bunch of variables that they think are important and then they assign some weights and that's how they do it. And I remember at my school, I was asked by the, the marketing department to help them reverse engineer <laughs> the the algorithm that was being used. And it was a little bit confusing because it seemed like they would kind of change it from year to year and they would also kind of fudge it. So if for some reason the schools that they thought ought to be at the top weren't at the top, then they would kind of go back and rejigger the algorithm. Do they start from the premise of what's important and then get to the rankings or do they kind of start with the rankings and then work backwards to figure out what weights will get them to where they want to go? Well, U.S. News started in 1983 with a ranking of top 25 schools based entirely on a beauty contest. That is a survey of college presidents in which they asked them, what are the best schools? And uh, after doing that for three or four years, they decided that they would add um, a statistical veneer, a scientific veneer, by plugging a whole lot of statistics in. But by that time, they had already established in their mind and their reader's mind uh, what the status hierarchy was. And so it was very clear, I think, when they started concocting the formula, choosing which variables, and particularly choosing these arbitrary weights to assign to the variables, it was pretty clear that they wanted to make sure that they didn't upset the status hierarchy that they had already created. And there are instances, I talk about one in the book, for example, where they decided to give more weight to spending per student in their formula. And as a result, California Institute of Technology leaped to number one because it turns out they spend more than anybody else per student. And U.S. News obviously didn't like that result. So the next year, they changed the formula back and Caltech dropped back down to around eighth or so, which is where I think they felt they belonged. And as you said at the beginning, why construct an ordinal ranking? Why don't you just give letter grades, for example, um, or adjectival grades? Uh, an ordinal ranking, which now for research universities in U.S. News goes from one to 400. And in some of the other rankings, like the Wall Street Journal goes from one to 800. I mean, imagine being ranked number 674th and, and trying to defend that position to your alumni or to a, an applicant. But anyway, the only reason to do an ordinal ranking is because you want a status hierarchy, and that's what they have. I was always very skeptical that these rankings would have any real impact on the senior decision leads, decision makers at these organizations, and that they would focus on substance and, and not appearance. But you highlight how even compensation schemes are tied to, and employment security is tied to the rankings at a lot of these universities. And if there's a radical fall off, then people lose their jobs. Yeah, that happens in some cases. 
It's been documented in a few cases. It probably has happened in many other cases. And there are plenty of instances where uh, universities' strategic plans specifically include a goal of moving up in the rankings. And I, I mentioned a number of those. Uh, and if, if the school doesn't move up in the rankings, uh, yeah, heads sometimes do roll. And, and I think what you sort of allude to the idea that U.S. News, in order to maximize its sales and click-throughs, sort of has to bake in a bit of drama, right? So that every year there has to be some movement, but not too much movement because that would make them lose right, their legitimacy. So I know I'm at the business school and you know, every year we're, we're kind of anxiously awaiting the release and we, we know that somebody's going to have to get moved around to keep things interesting and we're just always hoping that it's in the up direction. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, the U.S. News in particular has changed their ranking formula uh, repeatedly every year, two, three years. And uh, some of those changes are probably legitimate in the sense that they reflect uh, a change in the underlying data, the way it's collected or reported. Uh, in some cases, it's because they genuinely believe, or they say they genuinely believe, that they need to add a new factor to reflect what's going on in the world of higher education. But in a lot of cases, I just have to believe they do want to generate some drama. Uh, as you say, not too much, but a little bit of drama. So yeah, that happens repeatedly. Of course, what it means is that you can't uh, compare your ranking in one year to your ranking in a previous year because the formula has changed. And yet your constituents do. Uh, they say, well, you've moved up or you've moved down. I spent a lot of time when I was the dean of the Penn Law School in the early years of ranking law schools, explaining to my constituents that the formula was changing, that nothing else was changing. We were the same old school that we were the year before. But there seems to be an asymmetry, right? So when the ranking goes up, then administrators brag about it. But when they go down, then they dismiss it, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. If you look at the college websites, th their websites are full of uh, wonderful news about their rankings going up. But in the next year, very silent about what happened to their rankings. Now, is there a split between sort of the, the PR side of the university and the kind of president's office or the dean's offices in terms of how much attention to give to this? Well, I, I think that at, at many schools, some that I attended and some that I'm familiar with, the focus on the rankings really does come from the top. And then in other schools, the lower down employees may be reading the tea leaves, reading the signals that they're getting from the top. They may not be getting explicit instructions, but they're thinking, well, gee, we better focus. When I was dean of the Penn Law School for the first half of my tenure, the then president, I don't think ever talked about the rankings. But then the second half of my tenure... Was it Sheldon Hackney? Was that was Sheldon Hackney, yeah. And the second half, the new president, Judy Roden, talked about the rankings a lot. And um, she bragged publicly to the trustees and to the public about those schools at Penn whose ranking moved up. And I was never instructed specifically, move up your rankings. I don't think I was ever told in my annual evaluation that my salary increase depended on the rankings, but I got the message. It was pretty clear that that was really important. Well, I mean, how much can the senior leadership of a school do to communicate over these 
rankings. I think of this as being analogous to what a company has to do if they are being evaluated on, say, quarterly earnings, right? And quarterly earnings don't tell the whole story. And in fact, there may be situations where your quarterly earnings suffer precisely because you're doing the right thing, right? You're investing in in the future. And at that point, it really is incumbent on the CFO or the CEO to communicate to the investment community, hey, listen, don't pay any attention to that, right? That's not the relevant metric. It, it, it seems like if you're the president of a university, you just don't have the capacity to reach out to these potential applicants, right, to communicate something which would lead them to ignore these rankings because the students know that the recruiters are looking at the rankings, right? So is this going to always be the most important thing for a lot of applicants as long as recruiters think about it? Would it be necessary for us to kind of educate the recruiters first and then maybe educate the applicants later? I don't know as much about undergraduate employers and how much they focus on the rankings uh, as I do about law school. But there's no question that recruiters at law schools focus a lot on the rankings. The best example of that is uh, the federal judges, including particularly the Supreme Court of the United States, they recruit their law clerks almost exclusively from Harvard and Yale and they have for years. Um, and frankly, they do it because they are acknowledged to be the highest ranked schools. But I think that reaching the applicants is difficult when you're uh, a college and you're trying to reach out to literally tens of thousands of potential applicants, maybe hundreds of thousands of potential applicants. But the fact is that those ranking numbers are out there and they're sort of like you know, neon lit billboards and you're, you're trying to compete with a neon-lit bo- billboard with a bunch of pamphlets. It's hard. At the end of the day, it's a matching market. And, you know, there's heterogeneity on both sides. And so it's like marriage, right? You got to find a good fit. And we don't think of potential marriage partners as being evaluated along a agreed-upon scoring system, right? And so as a president of Reed College, I mean, you're looking for a particular type of student. And some of those students might be more or less attractive to other schools. How do you find them in such a dense and complicated mating market? It's a complicated and frankly, very expensive process. The cost of running an admissions office uh, has been escalating in recent decades. And I keep worrying about the fact that it's eating into the budget at the price of other things that would would be important, like financial aid or uh, instruction. In most schools, including Reed, we would get lists from the college board of students who had high scores on the SATs. And likewise, of course, the ACT. Uh, We would send mailings out to people who we thought at least were in our ballpark. We would recruit at high schools, especially the ones where we'd had success in the past. Uh, We'd get to know the college counselors at those high schools and perhaps a lot of other independent college counselors. Uh, We'd stay in touch with them. We'd try to make sure that they understood what we were looking for. And when any student expressed any interest whatsoever through just any kind of informal contact, we'd immediately get back to them and try to find out more about them. So, yeah, it's a complicated mating game. And there, of course, on the other side, they're doing the same thing. They're getting information from a lot of sources about a bunch of different schools and trying to figure out which what works. Now, there's two, two things that you talk about. One is cooking the books, right? Where 
these universities will basically lie or fudge the numbers, right? Try to make them look better than they actually are. But then the other thing is where they change the nature of the content itself, change the nature of the product itself. So there it's not about lying, but it's about kind of skewing what it is that they're doing in order to satisfy these external evaluators. And maybe we could walk through each of them in turn. Let's, let's start with cooking the books. I mean, cooking the books is probably easier and cheaper than altering the nature of the product, right? Right. But it's, it's increasingly risky, I suppose, because a lot of the data that the rankings rely on are also reported to the federal government. And it's one thing to lie to U.S. News. It's another thing to lie to the Department of Education. Although, interestingly, uh, last year, uh, the dean of the business school at Temple University was uh, convicted of a federal crime for lying to U.S. News. So if you do it in a way that defrauds applicants, it can be a form of, of federal fraud. This would be like lying to a ratings agency, right? Like Moody's or S&P, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. And that has serious consequences if you're caught. But lying, you know, every year there are stories about schools that have gotten caught sending false or falsified or at least inaccurate data to U.S. News and, and often to other rankers as well and often even to the federal government. Last year, the most celebrated example was Columbia University, uh, which submitted data on its undergraduate programs that uh, one of their tenured math professors found to be too good to be true, and he did some research and found, indeed, they were too too good to be true. And the people that do that are presumably uh, statisticians in the Department of Institutional Research. Every big university and even small college like Reed has a Department of Institutional Research, and that's the data crunchers. And they're the ones who get the instructions on what the data are that they're supposed to report. And they're the ones who try to interpret them. And of course, there's always room for interpretation. But there's also just plain room for fudging the data because a lot of the data are really hidden away. They're, they're difficult to trace. Uh, one of the data that uh, U.S. News uses in its formula is the percentage of classes in which the enrollment is less than 20, which sounds great. And uh, I say, you know, I really like that as a measure of academic quality because there's plenty of research that shows that the quality of learning that goes on in small classes is just better than in the big classes. But the problem is that um, it's very hard to verify how many classes had an enrollment of less than 20. And that was one of the ones that Columbia got nailed on. They claimed that something like 95% of their classes were under 20. And then when they got caught, they went back and recomputed, and it turned out to be more like 67%. That's a big difference. But it's really hard unless somebody is like this guy, a whistleblower, and does research to find out the answer to that. But some of these are not quite lying, but rather misleading. So, for instance, I, I think that when they measure how many classes have that size, they're looking only at fall semester. So you would have all your small classes in the fall semester, have all your big classes in the spring semester. Or my favorite one was employment after graduation and law schools were evaluated on this. And so there was a particular date, I guess it was like six months after graduation. So these law schools would just hire their unemployed grads to come in and work for a week in the, in the law school or something. 
right? So they could say, yeah, hey, they're employed, right? Right. Yeah, a bunch of law schools were caught doing exactly that. They were supposedly hiring them in their admissions office to do filing. <laughs> so yeah, that's a form of, of fudging that is a, a little bit less blatant than simply lying about stuff, but is essentially lying when you think about it. Now, some of the other metrics that factor into the formula include things like selectivity and yield, right? And these numbers are also ones that can be manipulated or ag aggressively tweaked, right? Admit people that you have, or get people to apply that you have no intention of, of admitting. That's how you can increase your selectivity number. And again, you point to the University of Chicago as an example, where they used to have a very high admit rate, but they essentially targeted only a narrow group of people as, as applicants, right? And then when they joined the common app and changed things around, then they were able to kind of reduce their selectivity substantially, right? Yeah, a lot of schools, I mean, very deliberately uh, increased the number of applicants, knowing that the vast majority of them would never have a chance. They did it through Common App. They did it by eliminating the admission uh, fee, for example. Uh, some of them adopted something called a two-part two application where you initially send in a letter of, of interest, and then a second stage is you actually fill out the full application. And they were calling the letter of interest an application. So there, there were a bunch of ways that they were fudging that. The other thing, of course, on yield... Um, Yield is the percentage of admitted applicants who actually show up, who, who actually enroll. Uh, you want that number to be high uh, as a way of showing that you're very popular, right? So when U.S. News was using that heavily as a measure, uh, that was when a lot of schools started going very heavily into early decision admission, which is to say, if you apply early, uh, we'll give you a, an answer early. But if we admit you, you've got to accept our offer. That way you uh, drove up your yield rate because everybody who applied uh, that you admitted was going to come uh, because they had agreed ahead of time that they would come. Well, what was wrong with that? What was wrong with that was that um, it favored the rich because the poorer students can't afford to commit early. They need to see what the competitive financial aid awards are. And so uh, it was well de demonstrated in the in the literature that uh, early decision tended to favor rich applicants and disfavor poor applicants. Yeah. Another metric that's used is the quality of the applicants, right? Whether it's SAT scores or, or GPAs. And this, I guess it does make some sense, right? That the quality of the education will be a function of the quality of, of the incoming students to some degree. And also I kind of makes sense to think that the people who are the, to have the most options, if they choose your school, then there must be something ab about your school, right, that indicates its quality. What's the problem with looking at those numbers? Well, I'm actually a believer in the SAT. Um, I realize that in this day and age, the SAT is becoming less and less popular. And I understand why. It does tend to favor privileged students, that is, economically and academically privileged students. Uh, but I still think that it is a force for democratizing higher education. It's a way of identifying really talented students from out-of-the-way places, unfamiliar high schools, uh, maybe even kids who didn't have a high GPA for whatever reason, but still have a lot of raw talent. 
And the other thing is that uh, all schools that I'm familiar with, including Reed, look at a lot of other factors and they say uh, to themselves, are there reasons why this SAT school score might not be representative? Is this a kid who didn't have the privileges of uh, growing up in a wealthy family with highly educated parents? Was this a kid who uh, lived in a violent neighborhood? You know, all those things. And then you take that factor into account. But yes, the, the SAT scores, uh, generally speaking, do correlate with academic quality. Everybody uh, understands that, and, and they accept that. My problem has always been that when you create a status-based ranking system in which you give a lot of weight to the SAT, you give schools an incentive to put too much weight on the SAT, and then too little weight on all those other factors that I mentioned that might explain, for example, why somebody has a low SAT. And I think that's been the effect of the rankings. Yeah, so SATs are correlated with wealth, but pretty much every other admission criteria is also correlated with wealth, right? And so it's a question of, right, which one is better than the other. UC Berkeley has announced that it will drop the SAT requirement. And uh, what I found interesting about that was that the chancellor formed a commission and asked the commission to look into whether it was desirable and whether it was going to lead to greater diversity. And the commission came back unanimously and said that this was not going to be good for diversity and the school dropped it anyway. What? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it seems puzzling, right? If you drop the SAT completely, what does that do to your place in the rankings? Well, U.S. News gives some weight. I think it's around 5% now. It's, it, it, the weight given to SAT has dropped steadily over the years. The graduate equivalents of SAT, the LSAT, GMAT, MCAT, so forth, still get a lot of weight in the graduate school rankings. Uh, and they too correlate with wealth uh, and privilege and economic advantage. But I think what happens is that if you drop the SAT, first of all, most of these schools go SAT optional. So they're saying to people, it's up to you to submit your SAT score if you want to or not. Well, guess what? All the ones with high SAT scores submit their scores and the ones without don't. <laughs> so your average SAT score goes way up when you do that uh, because um, a big chunk of your class doesn't submit SATs and they tend to be the ones who had the low SATs. Um, and there were studies that showed that schools that went SAT optional um, saw an average of about 160 point increase in their average SAT. Well, naturally that helped their rankings. Um, and frankly, I think that's one of the reasons why they did it. But I think that uh, a big problem, as you pointed out, is that if you drop the SAT, what are you gonna rely on to make an admission decision? You're gonna give more weight to all these other factors. Well, what are these other factors? There's the quality of the high school. Well, that, that obviously benefits the rich. It's the high school GPA. Well, guess what? Um, the high schools with the highest average GPAs are the college preparatory high schools. They all have great inflation like crazy. It's extracurricular activities. Well, guess who has the most interesting extracurricular activities? Guess who has the most interesting internships to write about? Or who has done the most interesting foreign travel? Rich people. So all these other things are going to favor the rich too. You actually said that if SATs were mandatory, that this would create more access for 
less wealthy applicants? I think there is research that supports that proposition, and I cite it in the book. One of the problems for lower-income kids in academically disadvantaged settings is that they don't even think about going to college. They don't think that it's possible for them to go to college. And one of the virtues of requiring an SAT prep and an SAT administration for every high school in a state is that all those kids really start to think more seriously about the possibility of college. And then some of them, at least, are going to do well enough so that they could actually be convinced to apply and get in. Yeah, I've heard from a number of university presidents that the, they would love to have more low-income applicants, but that there's an awareness issue, right? That a lot of the folks in those neighborhoods, they, they don't have counselors that are encouraging them to apply. They don't get that kind of reach out that, from the universities that the other folks get because they do take the SATs. But the other issue is money, right? And you say that the U.S. News looks at certain monetary variables, right? Like how much spending per student. And this is going to be a function of the endowment. It's going to be a function of donations and so forth. And so could we just, instead of looking, if we wanted to predict which schools were highest in the rankings, could we just look at their endowments? And <laughs> that would pretty much tell us which ones are at the top. Yeah, it would correlate very well. You know, the biggest endowment per student, uh, I think, in the globe is Princeton University. And guess what? They're always ranked number one among U.S. news rankings of uh, universities. And uh, I think Williams College, which is ranked number one among the liberal arts colleges, has a bigger endowment than Amherst, which is ranked number two. So sure, money is enormously important. Again, in the U.S. news rankings and in the other rankings, the clone rankings that are essentially trying to measure status. But that's really going to be, I mean, spending per student is probably not a, a direct proxy for educational quality, right? Because most of that, a lot of that spending is concentrated, say, in, if you have a medical school, for instance, right? You're going to have a ton of spending and a ton of resources. If you have, like here at Berkeley, I mean, we have the Lawrence Berkeley Lab. I, I don't think that the, all the money that's being spent in the Lawrence Berkeley Lab impacts in any way someone who's, say, an English major. That's one of the problems. The uh, spending per student figure comes from a datum that's collected by the U.S. Department of Education. And uh, what they require in the case of universities is spending per student university-wide. And what we really need for the undergraduate rankings is spending per student in the undergraduate school. But we don't have that data. So U.S. News uses the federal data. And as you say, that is distorted by uh, the spending for graduate and professional schools. Well, and you also said that they look at faculty salaries. I mean, most of the highly paid faculty that I know are the ones that do the least amount of teaching. Right? And so, I mean, when we're evaluating universities, research plays an interesting role here, right? Because, I mean, one would think Ceteris Paribus, the universities that do the highest quality research would give their students exposure to cutting edge ideas, but that's not always, that's not always how it plays out in practice. The undergraduate educational experience is in many cases far removed from the research that's going on in the university. When I, when I applied, I went to Penn undergrad and the president Sheldon Hackney, when he recruited me, he said, the reason why you should come here is because you will have the ability to, to start doing research as an undergraduate. And that was very appealing for me, but that's not what most students have access to, right? 
And it's frankly not what most students at these uh, elite universities, in fact, do. I had a friend who I won't name who resigned from the board of trustees of the University of Pennsylvania because he got data that indicated that the vast majority of students, undergraduate students at Penn, never wrote a paper longer than 10 pages. And so they're not doing research. And it didn't compare to the experience that I had at Reed College, where every student, in order to graduate, had to write a year-long senior thesis that in many cases was 50 to 100 pages, frequently original research. So it's a mistake, I think, to think that just because there's a lot of high-level research going on that the undergraduates benefit from it. It might happen, but in many cases, it does not happen. And of course, those faculty who are paid so well and who help boost your faculty salary rankings often teach the least. They get paid very heavily to research, not to teach. Well, now another contributor to the spending per student line item is sports, right? So we're embroiled in, at Stanford and Berkeley right now, we're embroiled in this whole Pac-12 fiasco. And, and if you look at the dollar figures that they would get if they stay away from the big conferences is really very small. And, th and that's going to show up, right, in the spending per student numbers. If they get a lot more TV revenue, that's going to allow for a lot more spending on beautiful practice facilities <laughs> and, and that sort of stuff. Is that skewing the numbers to some extent? Well, athletics uh, are included in the spending per students. I don't honestly know if the big athletic schools uh, include everything they spend on their semi-pro teams. But if it's a big expensive program, it does affect uh, spending per student. Uh, now, some people would say, well, that's good because uh, you should know that you're going to a school that's going to spend a hell of a lot of money on entertainment that you can enjoy. But, you know, again, I tend to think we ought to be focusing on measuring education and keeping the entertainment part of it separate. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, in my statistics class, I talk about the U.S. news rankings of hospitals, and these are notorious because the numbers that they look at are like survival rates after surgery and complications during surgery and so forth. And so a lot of hospitals, they basically pass the trash. They say, hey, if you come in here with a complicated problem, we don't want you. And this is how they keep their rankings high. So, you know, if we were to evaluate a school from scratch, we would think that it's the delta we should be looking at, the value add between kind of the raw materials and the finished product. And yet it seems like sometimes we're measuring the quality of the raw materials. And then sometimes we're looking at the quality of the finished product, like the, the salaries that come out the other end, but we don't control for the quality of the raw materials. So, I mean, of course, if you're going to have quality raw materials, you're going to have probably quality finished product. So, it, and if you take in folks who have relatively low scores at the front end and then turn them into these wonderfully productive people, you're probably going to have a lower score, right, than someone who takes in the high-quality raw material. Yeah, th th there's nothing in most of the rankings that uh, measure value-added, uh, or there's very little, I should say, uh, that me measure value-added. You, you mentioned uh, high-quality inputs and high-quality outputs, uh, and that's one of my main complaints about the extent to which rankings rely, for example, on graduation rates. Well, it turns out that uh, in order to have a high graduation rate, what you want to do is you want to admit all kids who are programmed to succeed. 
uh, which means that they've got a lot of money. Uh, they come from you know families with lots of educational inputs, and they had terrific educations before they came to college. And sure enough, they will graduate. They will graduate no matter where they go. The fact that Princeton has a 97% graduation rate doesn't really tell you very much about what goes on at Princeton. It just tells you a lot about who comes in the door. And I mean, when we do evaluate ROI, it's usually financial. Is there a way that we can look at non-financial output indicators? I remember one time I had a chat with the Wharton Dean a couple of years back, and he, he joked that if they could somehow get me out of the database, that would boost the average because I was teaching at a university, which is not investment banking income. And so can we do something like, I don't know, life satisfaction or... Is there some non-financial metric that we could use to measure the quality of the human capital that comes out the other end of the university? Well, there, there are lots and lots of measures, uh, but no agreement on what are good measures. That's the problem. Most of the measures that relate to either job satisfaction or life satisfaction or well-being rely on surveys of people. And so, you know, you've got all kinds of problems with surveys of people, but you ask them, are you satisfied with your job? Do you think your job makes the world a better place? What's your well-being? How often do you vote? There's all kinds of surveys. By the way, our, our students at the, at the business school are coached on how to respond to these surveys, right? So they get very, very elaborate coaching instructions. If you ever get contacted by anybody from the U.S. News, here's what you say, right? Yeah. I understand. I mean, Purdue University tried to come up with an alternative metric, and they partnered with Gallup polling uh, and came up with the Purdue-Gallup measures of life satisfaction. That's one example uh, that's been published, and I talk about that a little bit in the book. Uh, I recognize that th there isn't a level of agreement among those kinds of measures that there is on other kinds of output measures. The principal output measures that people rely on are graduation rate and postgraduate earnings. And those are countable. <laughs> they seem to be objective, but they're faulty too. But, but that penalizes people who go into, you know, if you go into public service, if you're producing people who work at nonprofits, even people who go and, and work in, in startups, right? They're going to have lower salaries, right? Right. And as I said, graduation rate rewards um, input more than necessarily output. And frankly, career earnings also re reward input. There are also studies that show that uh, people who are privileged walking in the door of colleges uh, tend to have higher salaries afterwards. Now, you, you also point out that if you're a university president or dean and you decide that you're not going to play this game and you just say, we're opting out. And since the publication of this book, the leaders of a bunch of top law schools have essentially announced that they're going to refuse to cooperate, right, going forward with a lot of these ratings organizations. What, what happens to you if you do this? Well, the law schools are a experiment to see what will happen. Now, of course, in, in the law school case, it's different because it was Yale that decided to opt out first. But in the college experience, it's, it was the lower school. So Reed, for instance, right, famously said, we're not going to participate. And they were penalized heavily, right? Initially, they were uh, dropped from the top quartile to the bottom quartile by U.S. News. Then later, U.S. News plugged in data, claimed that they were relying on whatever public sources they could get. But Reed refused to provide data, still does to this day. And um, it made up whatever data it couldn't find. 
And uh, U.S. News has admitted over the years that when it doesn't get data from the school that it's ranking, um, it assumes that the school's hiding something. And so it assumes that the data is lower than what it probably really is, and then it gets punished. So Reed has been punished for a long, long time by this assumption. I mean, Reed was a very highly regarded, is still, I think, a very highly regarded undergraduate institution, but it did not have a high graduation rate. That was its bete noir. Steve Jobs famously dropped out. Yes, <laughs> Steve, Steve Jobs is a perfect example of its lack of high graduation rate. He didn't even make it past the first year. Uh, so when they were starting to give a lot of weight to graduation rates, uh, Reed's rating dropped down. And I don't think anybody thought it was a different school or even a worse school because of that. They understood that the particular kind of people who go to Reed often don't finish or they don't finish at Reed. We had many uh, illustrious alumni who spent two or three years at Reed and then finished at someplace like Berkeley. But Reed didn't get any graduation credit for them. That's an example of uh, another way that the whole thing gets you know, distorted and distorts the image of, of schools. Probably would have been nice to add Steve Jobs' uh, lifetime earnings to the uh, Reed stats, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right? But, but I mean, there's two ways that you can opt out. I mean, one way is to just refuse to provide information. But it seems like the more important way to opt out is to refuse to let the rankings influence your pedagogical choices, right? And your admissions choices. Can you do that when you know that applicants are paying so much attention to this? Do you have to kind of cater to the ratings if you want to maintain the kind of student body that you're interested in, in attracting? Well, I think most schools are answering that question by their behavior. Yes. Um, Undergraduate schools have not followed the law schools. The law schools, yes, Yale started, and they were immediately followed by Harvard and Berkeley and Stanford and so forth. But by now, there are over 60 law schools out of the 200 nationally, and they're not all top-tier schools. And so they've all made a calculation, even the ones that are down in the middle or at the bottom of the rankings, that it's in their interest to make a public statement that they disagree with the rankings so strenuously that they're going to stop cooperating. Undergraduate schools haven't swallowed suit. I can still name, I think, on the, hand, on the fingers of one hand, the ones that have followed suit this year. And it's, it, frankly, none of the top-tier schools. I think the, the most highly ranked school is Colorado College uh, among the liberal arts colleges. And so they're obviously answering your question by saying, yes, we dislike the rankings. We maybe even hate them, but we can't afford to fight them. And we can't afford to to pull out. You know, I understand that calculation. It's it's like we depend on the rankings to signal our value to our primary constituency, which is potential undergraduate students. Well, I mean, given that, that students are going to look at rankings, I mean, could one solution be to create a proliferation of rankings, right? I mean, business schools have multiple different providers of these rankings. And, and I think that U.S. News does not have the same degree of prominence with the business schools. We've got Business Week, we've got Financial Times, we've got Economists, we've got Poets and Quants, we've got all these different ones. If you could create a, an alternative sort of tool for evaluating schools, 
what would it be like? So somebody approaches you, Colin Diver, and says, okay, I've just created this new entity and I'm putting you in charge and we're well-funded and you got a team of PhD statisticians here. How would you evaluate these schools? Well, I think the best example I can think of is uh, a do-it-yourself ranking system that the New York Times published just a few months ago. They basically started off with a set of questions that people needed to answer about their strengths and weaknesses and what they're looking for in higher education. And then uh, it basically said, here's a bunch of factors. You assign the weights and we'll give you a ranking. It'll be your ranking, not somebody else's ranking. I really like that. Unfortunately, the Times, which dabbles in rankings, never does it on a consistent basis. They sort of step in and do something, and then five years later, they come in and do something else. But that, to me, would be the right way to approach it um, and to recognize that we're not going to get rid of rankings, and I don't think we necessarily should get rid of rankings, but we need a selection of rankings that measure different things and that are, that are essentially catering to different tastes and different people. We do have now in, a, in the undergraduate world a lot of rankings, a lot. And there's a, a number of, of at least somewhat different styles. There's a ranking by Washington Monthly, which is predicated on the assumption that the way to measure the quality of institutions is what they do for their country. And they have a bunch of measures, some of which I find very quirky and odd, but they're trying to come up with an alternative way of conceptualizing education, which is a public good view rather than a private good view. And so there's other ones. There's this relatively popular one called niche.com, which literally takes about 150 different metrics that they are able to pull out of published sources and just squashes them together into a single formula. But they also publish uh, a whole lot of separate rankings based on different factors. So if you want a ranking of party schools, they'll give it to you. If you want a ranking of safe schools, they'll give it to you, et cetera. That's the thing we need. But the problem right now is that the U.S. news model, and U.S. news in particular, has become dominant. The status model, shall we call it, um, has become so dominant that all these others are seen as kind of oddball outliers. And, and what we need, as, as you say, is seven or eight or ten sort of competitors on an, on an equal footing. I love the idea of a flowchart or a decision tree, but we don't even have that for refrigerators. <laughs> you go to Home Depot, it's, it's bewildering, right? But I mean, I think the real challenge is the self-reinforcing nature of this system. It's almost becomes self-fulfilling and becomes very difficult to break away from because the reciprocal nature of the decisions made by all the different players. But I guess the last question I want to ask you is, you know, you were in attendance at John F. Kennedy's famous speech to commemorate the Frost Library. I've read that speech and I've heard all about that speech. And so it must have been a wonderful moment to be there. But I think the central message of that speech was all about access and about creating opportunities for people to, to get higher education. And this is, you know, it's 50 years later or 60 years later, actually. Are we any closer to that vision? Are we where you thought we would be uh, if you looked forward 60 years from the date of that speech? Well, we have made progress and no, we're not where I expected, certainly hoped we would be when I listened to that 
fantastic, eloquent speech uh, back in 1963, his last major address before he was assassinated. Uh, we've made a lot of progress in the sense that a larger percentage of young people go to college. Um, a larger percent, although still a woefully inadequate percent, graduate from college. I think college has become somewhat more affordable for some people, but it's become a lot less affordable for a lot of other people. When I went to college, the tuition at Amherst was something like $1,700 a year, and even in, by inflated by inflation, that's nowhere close to uh, the 60000 or whatever it is today. We've made it very hard for people to afford really good, expensive uh, higher education. We've created a class system that uh, used to exist but is kind of exacerbated so that the privileged get to go to the name brand schools. And there are 7,000 plus institutions of higher education in this country. But if you ask which ones are selective in the sense that they get to choose their students, really, uh, there's only about 400 of them. So the rest of them are the ones who are kind of doing the mop-up operation, and they're doing the most important work in our country. They're the ones who are educating the older students, the uh, racial minority students, the economically challenged students. They're the ones who don't get uh, much support and do their best. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I give, I give the system credit for expanding access, but the fact is that we know that the positions of leadership in this country are still dominated by people who go to the name-brand elite institutions. And those schools are still, frankly, notwithstanding their efforts to diversify, they are bastions for the rich. Well, but also the number of students that they accept has not dramatically increased since that time period, right? So the population's increased, the number of people who go to college has increased, but the number of people who go to the elite universities has been more or less the same. So are you surprised that the, these universities don't expand enrollment, right? I mean, if, if you're selling a high quality refrigerator and it's getting all the top rankings, I mean, you know, you, you want to maybe make some more, right? Right. It's a reflection of the fact that the apparent value of an Ivy League ed education is a function of its exclusivity. We want to be a club that only a few people can join is the sentiment. And that is unfortunate. It's a reflection of the competitive conditions in higher education. If Princeton took its lordly royal endowment and doubled the number of undergraduate students, it would be a wonderful thing except for one thing. It would fall in the rankings and it would lose its competitive edge. Well, Colin, thank you so much for joining me. This is a great book. It's called Breaking Ranks. I do think that every administrator needs to read this to be reminded of you know, how their lives are shaped by the rankings. And also applicants to the different schools need to understand what they're getting when they look at these rankings. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast produced by University FM. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review in your favorite listening app. To listen to our other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.